right, you guys can be seated. Good Sunday morning, Chapel Roswell. I hope that each and every one of you is having a great weekend. We're so honored and glad to be in worship with each and every one of you this morning. Uh, Shauna made reference to it earlier, but we've got these connect cards. And one of the things that we really like to promote is uh, small groups because that's a way for you to dig deeper into God's Word. It's a great way, great way to, uh, to get to know other people. And on our website, chapelroswell.com, it lists a lot of different small groups that are going on. And one of the things that we'll be starting in the next uh, couple of weeks is a small group on Thursday nights. I'm actually going to be leading that. It's a six-week study, so it, you're not having to dedicate the rest of your life to this. It's six weeks. It's going to be a great opportunity, like I said, to, to get to know other people and to, to grow in your faith. So with that said, we are talking about back to the future. What does that mean exactly? We talk about back to the future. Well, in the movie Back to the Future from 1985, Michael J. Fox was talking about the fact that um, he was traveling back in time. And then what happened after that? Well, he tried to get his way back to where he normally was. And so the rest of the movie was kind of inspired by the fact that he wanted to get back home, back to the future in the past, now looking towards the present and then even towards the future. So over the last four weeks, we have looked deep into Scripture. We've gone into the book of Acts. Chapter 2 is talking about the fact that the early church was growing by leaps and bounds. The, the early church, they had people in awe of what they were doing. Chapter 2, uh, verses 43 through 47, talks about the early church, what they did, it says that they were devoted, mentions four different things to which they were devoted. We'll look at that in a matter of mere moments. Now, we had Huey Lewis in the news earlier with the power of love. I want to take you back to 1980, let's say 84, okay? Check out this picture. Who knows who these guys are? Just shout it out if you know it. Van Halen. Um, I grew up with Van Halen. I was in high school when, when they had some of their biggest hits. And the other day, I was actually listening to the song Jump by Van Halen in my car. I was taking our son to, uh, to baseball practice. And he said, Dad, I don't like when you listen to oldies. That made me feel really, really old. It's not oldies. That's like classic stuff. It's uh, the, the really good stuff. So, I want to tell you a story, though, okay? As Van Halen, they started to rise to superstar status. They were playing sold-out arenas all around the country. And like every band, when Van Halen was hired to play a show, they provided the promoter, okay, with a contract. And in the contract were these various riders, called a rider. They outlined some of the specific things that the concert promoter had to provide, things for which they were responsible. They pertain to the standard sound and lighting requirements, the instructions for the setup crew, and all of the security needs that they would have to have for a concert. Now, Van Halen didn't simply perform a concert, mind you. This was a full-blown, spectacular, extravagant, whatever the right word is, concert. I mean, this was like really, really good stuff. A massive show. And in their contract, there was a provision hidden way down towards the very end of all of these riders, towards the bottom of their contract. They wanted certain things in their dressing room. For example, there was a contract rider in their contract that said, we want M&Ms in our dressing room, no brown ones. M&M's, no brown ones. 
Now, who do they think they are? I mean, seriously, demanding a type of candy and then having some sort of low-paid employee or an intern going through to, to pick out all of the, the brown ones. That just seems kind of crazy. These, these rock stars, they're all of these prima donnas. Sure sounds like that, doesn't it? But maybe instead of being prima donnas, maybe they're really brilliant businessmen. Now, hear me on this, okay? You see, Van Halen's concerts were elaborate light and sound shows, okay? All of the stuff that was on stage with them was a magnificent, just a, almost a theatrical performance. They often played in these big arenas that generally housed like baseball or excuse me, basketball or, or football games or, or something like that. They even demanded, like I said, certain foods in their dressing room. So it's interesting because if you look down at the, the, the contract, all of the things they had in it, there are all these requirements that they had to have as to what the show was going to be like, okay? But then there was that M&M kind of thing. Now, without specific guidelines, Van Halen said, the, the old floors would buckle and collapse, beams could rupture, the crew, the fans, they could all be in risk of getting injured if some of these things didn't go well. So it was necessary for the promoter who was putting on the concert uh, to read the contract ever so carefully. After all, the safety of everyone was at stake. And so towards the end of the contract, they buried that line about the M&Ms. Uh, not because, mind you, that they were arrogant, not because they were prima donnas, but because they wanted to make sure that the, contract, or the, the concert promoter had done everything that they said had to be done. If they arrived at the concert, they went into their dressing room, there were no M&Ms, or maybe there were M&Ms, but there were brown ones, what did that tell you? It told us that the promoter didn't really read all of that, and so if they couldn't focus on the little things like the brown M&Ms, uh, then how could they understand the bigger things that were going on? Van Halen created a seemingly silly clause to make sure that every little detail was figured out. It's a little bit different when you look at it that way, isn't it? They're, they're not these prima donnas, rather they're actually these pretty shrewd guys that want to make sure that everything is going off without a hitch. A bit different when you look at it maybe a different way. Sometimes we can better understand something if we know the story behind the story. With the story behind the story, we can really begin to understand the truth. And friends, during our current series, we wrap it up today, Back to the Future, we're looking at the story behind the story, and more on that in a matter of mere moments. In 1985, like I said, Michael J. Fox, Back to the Future, he went back in time. He's trying to figure out through the rest of the movie how to get back to his present day and age. So what does Back to the Future have to do with Jesus or with the Bible or with your faith or with my faith? Well, uh, we're going back in time to look at the lives of the early followers of Jesus. They weren't even yet called Christians, okay? This is like maybe five years after Jesus was crucified, came back, and then ascended into heaven, okay? Maybe the first five years, what the early church looked like and what they were experiencing and going through. In the book of Acts, like I said, we read about the early Christian church. They were primarily Jewish people who looked at Jesus as the fulfillment of their Jewish prophecy. They weren't looking to start a new religion. To the contrary, they were simply saying, okay, Jesus is this prophet for whom we had been praying. He's not only a prophet, he is the Messiah, okay? He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. 
So the, the, the scripture tells us that the early church, it was growing by leaps and bounds. Why was that? Well, the passage here describes the earliest days of the church in the big city of Jerusalem. Like I said, it covers really the first three to five years after Jesus ascended into heaven. We're going to go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Okay, let me read this to you. They, meaning the early Christians, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Okay, they devoted themselves to certain things, to the breaking of bread and to prayer Everyone, okay, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. Like we said a couple weeks ago, it doesn't mean they literally had everything in common, but it meant that their differences were not a big deal if you look at the things with which they have in common, the fact that they believe and they gave their lives to Christ. Here it says, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in the homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So the first verse of this passage tells us that the early followers of Jesus were devoted to four things. We mentioned this a few weeks ago. They were devoted to the teachings of the early apostles, that is the, the early teachers of the faith. The early Christians were devoted to fellowship. Okay, that is this deep-rooted connection, these deep-rooted relationships, being in community with one another. They were devoted to the breaking bread with one another. This morning, we're going to break bread a little bit later with Holy Communion. But in the scripture here, when it's talking about breaking of bread, it's not talking about Holy Communion. It's talking about the fact that they enjoyed meals together. And in that culture, as we pointed out before, eating together, dining together, having meals together, uh, very intimate things, okay? It was just really a big deal. And it also says that they were devoted to prayer. So while we read about what the early Christians were doing, there are two verses that, that stick out. These are verses that tell us, not what the early church was doing, but, but how people responded to what the early church is doing. And I pray that we can go back, we can see what they're doing, and then we come back to the future to say, this is what our church needs to look like today. This is what our congregation needs to look like today. This is what I pray Chapel Roswell will look like today. Okay, we're going to verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. This verse is looking, like I said, at the response of the non-Christians, people from the outside looking in. Everyone, it says, was filled with awe. Imagine that. These, these early followers of Jesus, they're worshiping Christ. They're dining together. They're living their lives in such a way that people look at them and say, man, I am in awe at that group over there. I am in awe of their faith. I am in awe what I can see God doing in their lives. I mean, that's pretty cool stuff. Are people in awe of what my life is displaying about God? Are people in awe about, uh, about your life and uh, the way they can see God working in you or with you or through you? Sadly, in our, 
culture, there are a lot of people who don't have positive things to say about Christians, or in many cases, the church. In many eyes, the church has very negative connotations. And sadly, I think with the church, many of those are self-inflicted. The, the, the church has, at times, has done things that, that, that really wound people or hurt people or aren't displaying the true love of Christ that we're called to live out. Uh, very often, people look at the church and say, yeah, we know what they don't like, we know what they're not for, what they're against, but we don't don't know specifically about what they are for. And sadly, many people look at Christians as being maybe bigoted or narrow-minded or, or hypocritical. Many people look, sadly, at Christians as being mean-spirited. It's been said that there are two reasons why people are not Christians. One, because they've never met one. Or two, because they have. That's powerful stuff. We have the opportunity... Actually, no, not just the opportunity. Uh, we have the duty uh, to live our lives that glorify God by loving people around us. The early Christians, my goodness, they obviously were doing this. So much so that people were in awe of how they were living their lives. Now, in our context, in our modern culture, when we think of the church, we think of a, of a facility, of an address, of a specific location, of a building. But the early Christians, they didn't have buildings. They would meet in public squares. They would meet maybe in homes. They would meet, in many cases, outside of the temple, in the courtyard surrounding the temple, because after all, they were Jewish people who looked at Jesus as the fulfillment of their Jewish prophecy. The Greek word for church literally means a gathering. It's not a building, it's a gathering. It's not a building, it's people. You, friends, are the church. I am the church. Uh, together, the scripture says, we are the church. Again, the church is not a physical location, it's a gathering, it's a collection of imperfect people worshiping a perfect Savior. And for the first several hundred years after Christ, we didn't see church buildings. In fact, it wasn't until Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire that people began to start building facilities and churches. So, friends, when we read or hear about the early church in the Bible, we're not talking about a specific location. Rather, we are talking about a collection, a gathering of people, the early followers of Jesus. Let's go to verse 7 now, verse 47, rather. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Okay, think about that. They, they were praising God. Okay, that, that's a good thing to do if you're a follower of Christ. They were enjoying the favor of all people. That's pretty cool. Not only were people in awe of what they were doing, it says that they enjoyed the favor of all people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That's pretty cool stuff. The early followers of Jesus had people in awe of what they were doing. The early followers of Jesus says that they had the favor of all people. Not everyone mind you, decided to be a follower of Christ, but the scripture said they still respected the work of the early church. In fact, there are a lot of historical and written early decrees of some of the pagan political leaders or the emperors of the day, and it sheds a lot of light on the reputation of the early followers of Christ. These uh, pagan emperors, for example, would note that during a famine or during a plague, people fled. 
But the Christians, they didn't flee. Rather, they came in. They rushed in to help during a, a natural disaster. The government might be in disarray, but the Christians devoted themselves to helping those who were struggling or suffering. They were deliberate. They were intentional about making a difference in their community. Are you? Am I? In the centuries to follow, in fact, hospitals and schools were among the benefits to society that the early Christians started. And so the verse tells us that the early church was growing by leaps and bounds. Why was that? Keep in mind that in many cases there was intense persecution going on. A lot of Christians were suffering. Uh, they were troubled because of their faith and the outward response of maybe the, the government towards them. In many cases, publicly professing one's faith in Jesus meant that uh, you were an outcast. Even in many cases, your own family might disown you. The followers of Jesus, they weren't worshiping the pagan gods of the Roman Empire, for example. And so that meant, in the eyes of the emperor, that uh, they were disrespecting or dishonoring or disloyal towards the Roman way. In many cases, even early Christians were driven out of certain cities because of persecution. In some cases, they were arrested. In some cases, even killed. So in light of the enormous social costs of being a follower of Christ in the first, let's say, three centuries, why would anybody choose to become a Christian? Why did Christianity grow so tremendously and exponentially? Why did Christianity grow? Why, why were people drawn to it? What did Christianity offer that was so much greater than the cost? I think there were three primary things that caused the faith in Christ to spread like wildfire. Okay, real quickly, number one, Christians were called into a unique social project that both offended and attracted people. The early Christians, they were quite radical, friends, in the ways in which they lived out their faith, quite radical in the ways in which they related to other people, quite radical in the ways in which they lived out their faith. Christians, they were unusually generous with their money, particularly to the poor and the needy, and not just to their own family and friends or their own racial group. Another striking difference was that the early Christian communities were, in fact, multi-ethnic, since their common identity in Christ was more fundamental than their racial identities or their socioeconomic identities. They were able to create and live in a multi-ethnic diversity, which was unprecedented in a religion during that day and age. In fact, the early followers of Jesus, they were intentional about the teachings about, for example, forgiving one's enemies. They were quite deliberate and intentional about preaching and then living out forgiveness, even to those who were persecuting them. Number two, another reason why Christianity was growing by leaps and bounds. People were drawn to it like moth to a, moth to a flame or, or like metal to a magnet. Number two, Christianity offered a direct, a personal, loving relationship with the Creator God. Uh, you see, during that age, the, the pagan gods, they were distant, they were unapproachable, and yet the Christians spoke of a loving creator who loves and forgives and leads and guides, a present God who is active in the lives of his people, a loving God who created us to be in relationship with him. And this was not only radical, this was completely unheard of. 
And number three, why was Christianity growing by leaps and bounds during this day and age? Christianity offered the assurance of eternal life. You see, friends, most pagan religions had no concept of eternal life. You were born, you went through your life, you died, and that was it. Uh, And there were some religions that had this concept of, of eternal life. One would achieve or experience this eternal life by appeasing one of their pagan gods. You had to to earn it. You had to deserve it. You had to work towards it. But the followers of Jesus, the scripture says, they had the assurance that their salvation was not because of anything they could do. Their salvation, just like your salvation, just like my salvation, is not based on anything that we do. It's not based on what we deserve. It's not based on what we earn or attain or obtain. It's based on what Christ has already done and what God continues to do. Even during times of persecution and suffering, the number of Christians was growing. Like again, metal to a magnet or moth to a flame. People were attracted to the early church. They saw lives that were different, and by golly, they wanted to be a part of it. And during times of persecution, for example, the followers of Jesus, they remained steadfast to their faith. And through this, there were a couple of reasons, real quickly, why the faith was growing, even in the midst of this major persecution. Okay, first, the Christian faith originally grew in the major cities. That was where it started to spread. But when the Christians in these cities, when they faced persecution, really a couple of different things happened. Okay, number one, many of the Christians were, were driven out. They, they saw the handwriting on the wall, so they went to maybe some of the rural areas. In the rural areas, they uh, met these pagans. The word pagan in Latin really means, I mean, for lack of a better word, it, it means like a redneck. It, it means somebody who is so rural that, that they're not really that smart when it comes to the status quo. People who are a little bit out there, that's what the word pagan means. So pagan stuff uh, really started uh, with its connection to the rural or the rustic areas. When the Christians were driven out of the big cities, where did they go? They went to the rural areas where they encountered the pagans and the faith spread amongst said pagans. Secondly, Christianity grew in the big cities because the the Christians were persecuted and and the the non-believers, they saw the ways in which they lived their lives. Even with the threat of death, the early followers of Jesus, they remained faithful. They had the assurance of eternal life that something that that they experienced, something that they could live out uh, was totally against the social norms. People would see the followers of Jesus even in the midst of deadly persecution and they would say, wow, If that is worth dying for, then it's got to be worth living for. I just pray that that each of us are are living lives that display hope, that they display peace, love, and forgiveness, hope, and joy. I pray that as we face maybe a little bit of oppression, maybe socially in our country. We certainly don't face the the persecution like people are experiencing around the world. In fact, even today, Christianity is spreading like wildfire in in parts of the world where in many cases it is illegal to be a follower of Christ. In fact, interestingly enough, the fastest growing Christian church is in what country? Just shout it out if you want to take a guess. Pardon me? Europe. Europe, okay. China, China's a big one. The, the Christian church is growing the fastest 
in the country of Iran. In 1979, if you remember your history, there was an Iranian revolution. They established a hardline radical Islam regime. And over the next two decades, Christians faced increasing opposition and persecutions. The missionaries, they were kicked out. Evangelism was outlawed. Bibles were banned. And several pastors were arrested and even killed. The church came under tremendous persecution and pressure, and many people, rightly so I think, feared that the small number of Christians, the small Iranian church, would soon wither away and die. Uh, Scholars, in fact, looking back, they say that after the Iranian revolution, there were only 500 or so Christians in the entire nation. This is in 1979. But today, despite tremendous opposition and persecution, there are literally hundreds of thousands, some people even say millions of followers of Jesus. Some say there are, like I said, several million followers of Christ in this nation that in 1979 had maybe 500 or so. More Iranians have become Christians or followers of Jesus in the last 20 years than the previous 13 centuries combined. How did this happen? Well, many Iranian Christians continue to to boldly and faithfully tell others about Christ. They lived their lives that were radically different from the rest of their culture, even in the midst of persecution. In fact, oddly enough, the, the, the second fastest Christian church is in the country of Afghanistan. Partly because the Iranians are reaching out to them because their languages are so similar. To think about this as we wrap up our time this morning. Uh, imagine, let's say, an average street, an average neighborhood. Imagine that there's a person, person X, a man or a woman, doesn't matter, person X. They live on a, a quiet street in a, a rather quiet neighborhood in Roswell or Alpharetta or East Cobb, you, you name it. Now, this person X, he or she, they're, they're not a follower of Christ. So you've got the the person not a follower of Christ next door. Let's say there's a a Hindu on the other side. Let's say there's a Muslim. And imagine that person X becomes a Christian, becomes a follower of Christ. Maybe he read something or maybe he has friends who inspired him to to learn more. Or maybe he had some sort of an addiction and through a recovery ministry he surrendered or she surrendered their lives to Christ. Maybe uh, he was invited to a church and he felt the grace and the mercy of Christ for the very first time. He became a follower of Jesus. He received the gospel, okay, the good news. And let's say then uh, that person X, after uh, acknowledging that they are now a a follower of Jesus, they uh, start living lives that are differently. They start living out the teachings of Christ. They actually take on this newfound faith very seriously. She allows her faith to to reign in every corner of her life. She's becoming more generous. She's becoming more compassionate. She's becoming more caring, more forgiving, more loving. Now, is this person X, because of this, becoming a a better neighbor or a worse neighbor? Like a better neighbor. If we're her neighbor, if we're his neighbor, person X's neighbor, man, we are so thrilled about her newfound faith. We find ourselves more and more grateful for a neighbor like her. You see, the good news, the, the gospel of Jesus is good news to the person X. And therefore, if it's good news to person X, It should be good news to the neighbors of Person X. The good news for Person X is good for the whole street. 
if the good news is really the good news, then it's going to be the good news to those around us. After all, friends, if we have a a genuine encounter with uh, the living God, we'll begin to look at others differently. No longer through the lens of what they can do for us. No longer through the context of maybe a sinful past. No longer through the grid of how different they are than we are. But rather we see them through the truth of God's love and mercy and grace. Uh, That he or she, uh, they're so loved by God and therefore they should be loved by us. We'll recognize them as neighbors. And we'll know that, according to Jesus, aside from loving God with all that we are, the most important commandment, Jesus says, is to love those around us. Friends, ponder this question as we wrap up this morning. How do those around you experience the good news of Christ in your life? The Bible tells us that the first century culture, the first century people, they were in awe of the the lives of the Christians. I wish that would be the same today, that that we're living lives that are so radical, uh, so loving, so compassionate, so caring, uh, that people are going to be drawn to that. I ask myself every morning, can, can people see the difference in my life because I follow Christ. Uh, Can people see a difference in your life because you are a follower of Christ? Uh, Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, the, the scripture tells us that you are at work in our lives. Lord God, may we allow you who began a good work within us to continue to be at work within us. May you use us to make a bold and tangible difference in our community and even in our world. May we be constantly reminded of what really matters. And and may our lives, our words, our actions, our attitudes, our reactions be an outflow of the work that you are doing in us. May those around us be blessed by the fact that we have been so blessed. And Lord God, during this time of reflection, may we truly ponder the greatest invitation ever sent forth. That Lord, you call us to accept your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. uh, Things that we never could achieve or experience on our own. That's why we need a savior. We can't save ourselves. And that's why you sent one. May our lives reflect that. May all we do bring glory and honor to you. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts for Holy Communion this morning, may we be mindful of the amazing ways in which you pour out your grace upon us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we prepare our hearts and minds for Holy Communion this morning, I I want you to check this out and and to to kind of check our hearts and our minds and our spirits to to see what it is that, that we are really commemorating or celebrating or taking part in this morning.
One of the things that we remember and celebrate is the fact that even when things aren't going our way, that when we're experiencing troubled times or difficult days or, or pain or fear or anxiety or agony, uh, we know that God is with us. And, and how would our lives look different if, if, if we all the time remember that God is sovereign and that God loves us? Every morning, I, I, I have some, some notes, some bullet points, if you will, on, on the iPad, and, and I'll look at it to, to make sure I'm not going off course or, or going too long. And so this morning, when I stood up on stage and, and gathered in front of, you know, hundreds of folks here this morning, I, I hit on, put my secret code word in, and instead of my sermon being there, it said, updates, Downloading updates. So the whole time you saw me looking down, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have no idea where I'm going. I have no idea how we're going to make it through this. And so I kept looking down, hoping that, that something would change, and it didn't. In our lives, maybe we'll experience things in, in maybe a similar way. I'm not making light of the, the real problems that we have in life, but we do have a God who loves us. We have a, a Savior who died for us. And so this morning, we prepare our hearts and minds for Holy Communion. In fact, this morning is actually referred to as World Communion Sunday. Congregations around the globe, around the world, celebrate Holy Communion on this day. World Communion St uh, Sunday started in 1936. It's it's a celebration of our Christian unity, uh, that despite our differences, we are bound by the love and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, by a God who loves us. And so during Holy Communion, we remember that sacrifice that Jesus made for you and he made for me. This common union, if you will, binds us together as followers of Christ. The, the Lord's Supper takes us back to the cross of Christ where the Son of God died for our sins. We, we go back to this table so we can remember what God is continually doing in our lives. Jesus was having the Passover meal with his disciples, and as they were eating, uh, Jesus with his disciples, he took the unleavened bread and he broke it. He blessed it and he said, take, this is my body that is broken for you. He took the cup of wine, and when he gave thanks for it, again, he blessed it. He drank from it and passed it around to his disciples and said, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. He was telling them that from this point on, from this moment on, things are going to be different. Our salvation is not based upon our works. It's not based on us keeping the law. Our forgiveness is not based on our sacrifice by giving up his life for you and for me, by the spilling of his blood and the breaking of his body, we are redeemed, we are forgiven, we are made new. And so during communion, during the Lord's Supper, we remember that sacrifice that Jesus made for us. I'm gonna invite the band to come down this morning and also those of you who are serving communion, I invite you to come down as well. And as they do, let's, let's go to God in prayer. Lord God, we do not come to your table trusting in our own goodness. Instead, Lord, we trust in your unfailing mercy. Lord God, we repent for those times we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We repent for those times when we haven't placed you first in our lives. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. But Lord God, you are the same Lord who forever pours out his mercy upon us. And so grant us, therefore, gracious God, this time to partake in the sacrifice, the sacrament of your son, Jesus Christ.
that we may walk in newness of life, that we may grow into his likeness, and we may evermore dwell in him. We serve Holy Communion by a a method known as intinction. The word intinction is a Latin word that means to dip. The server will tear off a piece of bread and and give it to you, and then you'll dip it into the cup. Uh, We'll invite you to come down kind of in a clockwise motion. You'll you'll go out to the left of where you're sitting. You'll take communion, then kind of return back to the right. The table has been set. The elements have been prayed over and blessed. The invitation has been extended. And so we invite you to come to God's table as you feel led.